Welcome, everyone, to the Cup of Coffee podcast with me, your host, Tom Dillon. This has been recorded live at our weekly online meeting and broadcast around the world. Today's topic is, can property insurance be sexy and fun? With Caroline Fairclough. Um, before we start, I'd like to say by way of a disclaimer that not, today's a wonderful discussion, but that nothing said here constitutes financial advice, and you should always take professional advice before investing your hard-earned cash. You know, I say that every week. Sometimes I think I should change it and say that everything said here does constitute financial advice, just to put extra pressure on the speaker <laughs> and see if they call me out on it. But wouldn't, wouldn't dream of doing that, really. Um, uh, there may be the odd unplanned swear word along the way as well. The format for today is that Caroline will speak to us for a while and then we'll be taking questions from the floor. Uh, Caroline works for Sentio Insurance Brokers, an independent commercial brokerage with extensive experience in property insurance. Sentio consists of a team of 16 people who collectively have, a t- have over 200 years' experience in the insurance industry. Only old people need apply. Uh, Caroline's, not Caroline, of course, Caroline's core principles are to work with integrity, respect, passion, professionalism, and always with a client at the centre. Funny enough, those are the opposite of my principles. Uh, if anyone wants to know what mine are, it's just those in reverse. Uh, the link, uh, no, the, forget the link, there's no link. Um, I've, I've gone off script. Uh, so, uh, good morning, Caroline. Let's get back. Let's get back on script. <laughs> good morning. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, and in between you doing the introduction, um, I don't know what I've clicked, but I've somehow managed to mess the slides up again anyway. So you don't have full screen, <laughs> but this way you'll get to see some of the notes, which I'll be talking about anyway. So uh, uh, never mind. I'm not great with technology, but I'm good at talking about insurance. So that that's all that counts. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you ever so much for having me here. Uh, I thought I'd just try and um, spend a little bit of time talking about insurance and um, not trying to make it too complicated, but not trying to oversimplify it either. So the first slide I've got here is um, what insurance do you need? Well, it's, it should be an obvious question, really, but um, not it isn't obvious to everybody, unfortunately. Um, and as a landlord, if you're buying property that you're going to rent out, you need landlord's insurance. It's also known as property owner's insurance. You don't need home insurance. Home insurance is something different. Home insurance is where you live in the property yourself, where it's your own personal residence. So landlords or property owners insurance is what you're looking for. Um, Best thing to say about this is, uh, I think if if anything that you take away from this is cheap isn't always best. Um, And that's true of everything, I think, uh, generally in in life, what you buy for, but when you're buying things uh, generally, um, but cheap isn't always best. And especially when it comes to to property. the main things that you're going to need as a landlord, um, it should, like I say, it should be pretty obvious, uh, but you should be think, looking at things like buildings insurance, contents insurance, loss of rent and property owners liability. Those are sort of the main headings. There's a, a massive array of different types of insurance and different variations um, within the policy wordings that you're actually going to purchase. But I'll just talk a little bit about those um, core elements, uh, really, that you're looking for. So what do I mean by all of this in, in reality? So buildings insurance, I'm talking about the bricks and mortar the physical physical structure of the property that you're purchasing. What is it? Um, How much is it gonna cost to rebuild? Um, Where do you get that figure from? So spend a little bit of time, we'll backtrack a little bit. You buy a property, let's say you buy it for 150,000 pounds and that's the market value. Insurance doesn't matter about the market value. We don't need to know about the market value. We want to know about the reinstatement value. So how much is it gonna cost to rebuild? Um, what kind of considerations should be given there are um, 
what kind of materials are being used to rebuild it? Where is it? What the location is? How old is the property? So we're looking at, um, it's essentially if the building burns down or gets knocked down, you've got to move all that debris, uh, all the bricks that have fallen down, you've got to move it all out the way. You've got to pay for professionals, architects, laborers, you've got to buy the materials, all of those tangible things to then rebuild your property. So when we talk about a sum insured or what, what it is to, to rebuild or reinstatement value, declared value, we want to know those figures. Now, it's really difficult for us to say as an insurance broker how much you should insure your property for. We don't know your property. We've not seen your property. Um, so really, you should be doing that kind of research, first of all. Now, it's easy if, you've if you're doing it on a mortgage. Quite often, the, um, the mortgage valuation will include a section about the reinstatement value of the property. So they'll actually tell you how much it should be insured for. If they haven't, there are other ways of doing it. So, for example, uh, you could pay somebody, you could pay a, a surveyor to come over and do a reinstatement valuation of your property. However, I understand that that does cost money. Um, we actually do partner with a company that will do a desktop valuation from £150, which then does a footprint of the, the, the location all on desktop, a footprint of the location, where it is, roughly about the materials and, and things like that that are being used, what kind of professional fees are being used at the moment, and then they'll give you a, a figure. But I understand that that costs extra money, uh, especially when you're just buying a property, it's, it's more cost. There are free ways of working it out as well. Uh, and I can put the, this link, or Tom, I don't know if you've got the, the link, but I can put it in the, the chat afterwards. Um, it's the Rebuilder Calculator, so Rebuild Calculator uh, that's uh, run by the BCIS. Um, and essentially you log into that system, you put in the square footage of the property, what type of property it is, how many bedrooms, bathrooms, et cetera, if there's a garage uh, and that kind of thing. And you put that information in and the system generates a figure for you. Now I should caveat that is it does give you three figures. It will give you a very, very basic figure, which is the low end of the spectrum, and it will give you a high end of the spectrum figure, and then it will give you a figure in the middle. So it's kind of catering for all aspects, because as you can imagine, rebuilding a property um, varies between regions. It can be very expensive in London, for example, because of where it might be or how you're going to get materials to the location. Uh, whereas if it was a you know a property somewhere a bit more rural that's actually easier to get to, it might be a little bit cheaper. So they do give the, those three kind of figures. Uh, figures for you to, to have a look at. But I would say that the onus is on the property owner to actually find out what the reinstatement value of the property is. Now, I, the reason I, I, I sort of emphasise this point of it is because um, there's a statistic going around that something like 70% of properties are underinsured in the UK. Um, and when a property is underinsured, if you have a claim, the insurers will apply what's called the condition of average. Uh, and that basically means that they will reduce your settlement in proportion to the percentage of underinsurance. So, for example, if you're 50% underinsured, you will only receive 50% of your settlement. And that applies to partial losses as well. So it only needs to be part of your building that, that's damaged. They will still make that assumption and that, that assessment to see whether you're adequately insured or not. So if you're underinsured, it has a massive impact on a potential claim if, if you have one in the future. So it's really important to make sure that that figure is correct. Um, we can give you advice, we can give you um, different uh, ways to look at how to find that figure out, um, but the onus is on the landlord to make sure that that figure is correct. So that's the building. And I just wanted to spend a bit more time on that because people don't often give the right figure for that because they often just give me the market value. It's a great place to start, but quite often it has no correlation. There's no correlation between the, the rebuild figure of the property. So that's the buildings. Uh, next, it's good to con uh, consider contents. 
So are you furnishing the property? What kind of things are you leaving in there? Are you carpeting it? Are you leaving carpets down? Are you leaving any white goods, furniture, sofas, that kind of thing? Might only be a small amount, but if you are carpeting it and leaving nothing else, it's sometimes good just to have maybe one or two thousand pounds of contents in there to cover the carpets if you had to replace them in the event of a claim. So contents is another one. Um, it's also important to say here that if your tenant is moving in and the tenants are bringing their own contents, it's the tenant's responsibility to ensure their own contents. You as a landlord are not responsible for ensuring their contents. Uh, the next one here uh, is loss of rent. Um, now, this is different to if a tenant defaulted on their rental payments to you. That's a different insurance that you can have separately. Ask me about that separately if you like. Uh, but loss of rent basically is like business interruption. So if you have a claim where you can't, uh, where your tenant can't live in the property anymore. So there's been a fire or a flood, for example, your tenant can't live there anymore. You lose that rent that they would have paid had there not been a claim. So the loss of rent section will pay you that amount for the duration of that, that claim that's going on. Um, now, that's often included automatically under a residential property owner's policy. Not always, but most of the time it's calculated at around about 20% of the building sum insured. Most of the time that will be fully adequate, um, but it's always worth working out what your annual rental income is. What we also do here with loss of rent is um, we actually multiply that by three years. So when we talk about an indemnity period, we're talking about the period it takes to rebuild the property. So let's say you have a claim and it takes two years to rebuild. Um, you lose that tenant for two years. Uh, that's two years of rent that you would have lost. Well, if you have an indemnity period of two years or more, your policy will pay out that rent that you would have had had that claim not occurred. So it's always really important to have a look at how long that policy will pay you for for the duration of the claim. Um, me personally, I generally um, offer 36 months. So that's a three year period for the loss of rent. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go less than uh, 24 months, so two years. Um, because I have seen many, many, many claims where it takes more than 12 months to rebuild a property. So you don't want to be exposed. You want to make sure that you've got the right kind of cover because um, any kind of claim like this, a financial claim that's you know hundreds of thousands of pounds, for example, can make a person go bust. I've seen it bankrupt companies uh, and individuals as well. So it's really important to have a think about um, those kinds of things when you're, when you're looking at insuring your property. So that's your loss of rent. And then the other element, which is really important, is what's called property owner's liability, also known as public liability, which, you've, which you might be more familiar with. Now, this, for example, is if somebody is injured on your property and they blame you and they come and sue you, and then suddenly the courts say you've got to pay X amount of money for co in compensation. So typical examples for this would be um, if a tile falls off the roof and hits somebody on the back of the head, for example. Um, that could be your negligence because you haven't repaired the roof in however long uh, and therefore you are liable. Well, public uh, property owner's liability or pr public liability um, is the, uh, the section of the policy wording that would pay out. Now, I've got a, a tangible claim example for this for you. So it wasn't one of my claims, but I'm aware of it. Um, I, I can't remember how long ago, let's say about 10 years ago, perhaps. Um, there was a landlord, he had a, a property that was empty and he was uh, advertising it to rent it out. So he'd got the uh, to let board up outside the property. Uh, obviously, he didn't put the board up. He got another company or the lettings agent to put the, the board up outside his property. Now, he felt that it was in the wrong place. He didn't think that people were seeing it, so they couldn't see which property was, was up for rent. So he decided to move that to let board and move it to a different part of his property so that people could see it. 
because he moved it himself, he didn't actually put it in properly or, or whatever. Uh, and somebody walked past this board and it fell and the corner of the board hit them on the back of their neck and they became a tetraplegic because of where it hit them on the, on the spine of their neck. Um, that claim was about four million pounds. Um, so as you can imagine, that's a huge amount of money. If you've got that lying around, absolutely fine. Don't take out the insurance. But generally speaking, people don't have that kind of money lying around. So that's a, a really a tangible um, a tangible claim there that does, ha does actually happen. Now, the important thing to note about property owners' liability is you must be negligent for a claim to be successful. So if you've not done something or you've done something that someone thinks is wrong, uh, that's what I'm talking about where I say there about the, the board falling down is because he moved it. He didn't get the proper company to come in and do it properly. And the, the one I mentioned earlier there about the, the tile falling off the roof, generally speaking, if your roof is in a bad state of condition and that's why the tile falls off, you're negligent. If you haven't done anything wrong and somebody trips over, that doesn't mean automatically that the policy is going to pay out simply because there's no negligence. You haven't done anything wrong. So that's kind of the, the things that the insurers look at is, is it your fault? Have you done something wrong? And are you liable for that? Are you responsible for that? So I could talk about that, all these different things all day, but I will try, try and move on so that I can make this uh, this presentation fun as uh, Tom has uh, put the pressure on. Uh, so those are the, the sort of the four main things that you're looking for um, with, the, with the insurance there. And as I say, when you're looking at insurance as well, um, there are lots of different types of property um, policy wordings out there that cover lots of different things. So I can talk about that separately if you want to ask me some, some questions about it afterwards. But those are probably the, the key uh, heads of cover, if you like, that, that you should be looking for. So the next slide here is, is just about understanding the fine print, a full disclosure. So what I mean here is um, when you're uh, looking for a quotation, uh, insurers are looking for what's called the material facts. So material facts are the bits of information about you or the thing that they're insuring um, that gives them the reason to whether to decide whether to insure it or not and how much to charge. So material facts include things like who you are, uh, what your financial history might be, where you are in the country, whether you live abroad, whether you live here, um, whether you've had any claims before and then about the property. So what kind of property is it? Um, and also about the tenants. Is it an HMO? Is it a single buy to let? Is it a flat? Um, we need to know these kinds of things. So with the more information we have, the better uh, premium that we can actually get from the insurers because we've got all the facts avail available to us. So we can talk about uh, negotiate really with insurers about what kind of figure that they're going to charge. Uh, another one is uh, whether the property is vacant or not. We need to know if it's vacant and how long it's been vacant for. Uh, and then things like the type of tenant. So who the tenant is. Tenants are they DSS? Are they placed there by the, the housing association or the local authority? Um, are they an asylum seeker? Um, are they a student? So all, all different types of tenants, and most insurers will. A lot of insurers will cover all the different types of tenants. Um, it just means that we go to different insurers for different types of tenants. So we need to know uh, what kind of tenant is it is in the property. Um, we also need to know about you, as I mentioned there, whether you reside in the UK or not. I'll talk a little bit later about, uh, about that, but that's a really important factor, particularly at the moment. We need to know where you are in, in relation to the world. Where do you live? Um, so the quotes are based on this information. So it's really important to give as much information as you can, because the more information that you give, the better the premium that we get. And it also makes sure that you're covered on the right basis so that if there is a claim, there's not going to be any delays. There's not going to be any questions about what's insured or what's not. So how to buy insurance? How do you buy insurance? 
Um, and this should, I'd say it's an obvious one, it might not be, um, but there are a couple of different ways to buy insurance. So you could buy it online. You can go onto uh, you know, one of these comparison sites, the way that you do your own home insurance or car insurance, for example, you put your information into the system, uh, it generates a quote and, and off you go. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you can do that, that's not a problem. Um, you generally get very good prices for doing that. However, it very much depends on ticking the right boxes. It's about a very specific set of criteria. Um, if those boxes are all ticked, absolutely fine, off you go. If you never have a claim, you never have a problem. Um, what we tend to find with these types of ones is that because it's uh, based on um, a specific, specific algorithm, um, if computer says no, computer says no, that's it. Or if the, uh, the person putting the information is, is trying to be clever, they can change the information they put on the system just so that it generates a quotation. Well, that might be fine because you get the price that you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're covered for the right things. Uh, as people often find out when they have a claim because they realise they haven't told the insurer everything because they put it through a system. And because, you know, they tick the boxes, they think that they're insured. That's not always the case. Um, the other thing to say about online is that sometimes these um, companies or call centers are what we call transactional. Um, uh, a, a very specific example of this, I probably am not allowed to name names, but there's a company out there that does exactly that. And they are known as a non-advisory transactional business, which means that they can take your information, put it in the system and generate a quote, but they're not actually allowed to give you advice. So they can't talk about whether you're doing the right thing or not. They can't talk to you about the different elements of insurance and what it means because they're not regulated to do so. Now, if you know what you're doing and you know exactly how to, to you know, put the correct information in the system, absolutely fine. There is nothing wrong with buying your insurance online. I do it myself for my own home and car insurance. Um, but there's a time and a place for it is, is what I'm trying to say there. The other way of doing, doing this is via a broker. Now, the advantage of doing this through a broker is that a broker is supposed to listen to your needs. So they listen, they ask you questions, they try and ascertain what it is that you actually want, what your exposures are, and they will try and mar marry that up with the type of insurance policy that they then give you. They will identify the areas of exposure, as I say, and they will give you advice on what type of insurance that you can have. And they also might decide to um, offer other elements of insurance that might be relevant, might not be, but they might be relevant. So it's just giving you um, and making making you uh, make an informed decision. They're giving you lots of information. They will be your point of contact. They're there to hold your hand, if you like, uh, in the event of a claim. So that you're not there on your own, on your own, trying to do all these things yourself, that you've actually got somebody there that has knowledge of the industry, has knowledge of how claims work, um, how policy wordings work or how policy wordings are interpreted, for example, you're not on your own. So the role of the, bro the broker is quite a vast thing. Um, and we like, you know, what, what Tom said there about introducing us and, and we're making the client um, centre of what we do. We work with professionalism. Customer service is really important for us because it's about relationships. We want to explain to you what it is you're getting into, to explain the, the conditions of the policy, to talk about what you've got to do or not do, um, and really just to um, be there you know, when, when something does go wrong, or if it goes wrong, I should say, rather than when, although it does happen more often than you think. Uh, so it's somebody there to just give you some advice and, and how to do it. Um, I would also point out here that there are good and bad brokers. Um, it's a difficult one, but I would always recommend that you get on with the person that you're speaking to. 
ask questions and ascertain how they answer them as to how you feel about that because it is really much about a relationship and it makes things a lot easier if you do have a problem that you get on with the person that you're buying that thing from uh, so you know that that's just a something but you know advice in life <laughs> should we say i do have a couple of claim examples for you as well to make this a bit more tangible uh, as to what I mean when I said about material facts and giving all the information to the insurers. Um, the pictures on the screen actually aren't anything to do with the claims um, that I'm going to talk about, uh, but it just gives you a bit of an idea uh, of what we're talking about. So the first claim isn't one of mine, I have to say, uh, happened a few years ago that I'm aware of. Um, it was a block of flats. There was four flats in this block. Uh, and the client didn't tell their broker uh, that the tenants were all placed there by the housing association, so they were in receipt of benefits. Now, that's not usually a problem because we can get insurance for those types of tenants. Um, but this particular client hadn't told their broker that that's, that was the situation. So it was a non-standard tenant. Uh, unfortunately, there was a claim. I think it was a water claim. I forget what it was now, but uh, a claim. And it was about £13,000. Well, when the loss adjuster went to the property, they do their usual due diligence. They ask about the property. They ask about the tenancy agreements. They make their inquiries. Uh, and it comes to light that actually the insurer didn't know that these were all non-standard tenants, that they'd been placed there by the council. Had the insurer known about that at the beginning, they would not have offered cover to that client. So this claim was not covered. They voided the policy and it was a £13,000 claim. So it's really important to give that information to the insurers because £13,000 doesn't necessarily sound like a lot in the grand scheme of things. But my next claim that I'm going to mention to you um, puts it a bit more into perspective. It's really important to tell your broker at the beginning uh, of all the information to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen. So second claim example, you can see on the picture there, it's a house that looks like it's about to fall down. Uh, pretty much what happened. Again, not one of my clients, but he did come to me uh, later on to ask if I could help. Unfortunately, there wasn't an awful lot I could do at this point. But essentially, this guy owned two properties next to each other, two residential houses next to each other. Uh, and the one on the end, which was an end terrace, he was doing some um, structural work to it. So he was putting on a, an extension. Uh, he got a contractor in to, to do all this work. The important thing here is he hadn't told his insurance company that he was doing any kind of structural work to the property. The second thing that his mistake is he hadn't checked that with the contractor that the contractor had their own insurance for doing the works. The contractor was digging down uh, for the foundations because obviously they were building an extension, so they needed to dig down for the foundations for, for this extension. He dug down incorrectly. I'm not sure, uh, sure of the details, but he didn't do it properly. And overnight, the side of the house fell down. So that picture there that I'm showing you where there's a big gap in the wall, essentially that's what happened. The side of the house fell down. Uh, thankfully, nobody was, was injured, um, but the side of the house fell down. Nobody was in it at the time, um, but obviously the client was uh, mortified that he had half house now. He found his insurance company to say, well, you know, I, I need some cover. I'm, you know, this is a few hundred pounds, three, few hundred thousand pounds uh, claim here. Um, and the insurance said, no, we're not paying out because A, it was caused by the contractor, uh, B, he hadn't told his insurance company that he was doing any structural works. Had he have done, um, they would have put some conditions on the policy, which he would have had to have adhered to. Uh, and thirdly, he then went to the contractor and the contractor didn't have any insurance either. So suddenly he has a house that is half fallen down with the works from the, the extension that he was doing, which couldn't be finished because he had half a house. Um, so... <laughs> It's a really difficult one because he then came to me and said, well, what can you do? Can you help me? 
at that point, there's not an awful lot I can do because I have to disclose then to all the future insurers that were quoting that he's had a claim rejected. That's a really big thing because he's had his, his policy voided and he's had a claim rejected. Um, so I have to disclose that to future insurers. So it makes things really tricky for uh, insurers um, going forwards. So those are two examples. I mean, I have hundreds of different ex examples of claims that I can talk to you all day about if you want to know. I'm sure you don't want to know, but I do have examples. Um, but just gives you an idea of it's really important to give the information to the insurers at the beginning, because if you do that and it's all on the right basis at the beginning, it avoids any delays or issues later on down the line. If you never have a claim, it's never a problem, but you never know when you're going to have a claim, which is the which is the issue. So how can I help? Um, well, I can help in lots of different ways. Uh, I can help just by giving you advice. I can talk you through policy wordings. I can help you with claims. I can just talk to you about what it is that you're looking to insure and what kind of insurance that you need. Choose a broker that understands your business. Um, that's what I was saying before about when, when I said about how to buy insurance. Um, buying a property is one of the biggest investments that you can make. And I don't think people put enough importance on what that means in terms of having the right kind of cover for it. Um, you know, you, you insure your own life, um, you, you buy life insurance, you, you know, buy your home insurance, your car insurance. Why wouldn't you spend as much time looking at what, what you're insuring when you buy a property? Because actually it's probably more important because you've got a third party living in there that can hold you responsible for anything that you've done wrong. Uh, so it's really important to uh, speak to a broker that understands uh, your business. Uh, one of the reasons I really like to do some of these property networking events is actually I learn a lot more from you guys about what it is to own a property or learning about um, what kind of issues that you have so that I can then think about how that relates to insurance and how we can factor that in. Um, so it's a really good idea to speak to a broker. Uh, and when I said before about speaking to a broker that you get on well with, I think that's also really important because it means that you understand when they say something to you and you, you feel confident enough to ask questions and say, oh, I don't understand that. Can you explain it more? You're more at ease to be able to uh, talk freely with that person. So under, understanding your business is, is my priority. I need to know who you are, what you do, um, because then I can really give better advice uh, about what it is that we're, we're offering to you. Um, one of the little mantras we often say is in, insurance is only as good as the information that, that the insurer receives. So I will bang on about it all day long, but it's really important to give as much information, more information than is relevant to us as a broker or your insurance company so that we can make sure that you, you've got the adequate insurance that you need uh, when you need it. So types of property insurance that we do, I mean, we pretty much do it all, to be fair. Um, we, as an insurance broker, we do all sorts of different types of insurance. We don't just do property, um, but obviously I'm focusing here today on, on property generally. Um, but we do most of the spectrum, if you like, of, of different types of tenants. So we do your, your standard buy-to-lets or single buy-to-lets. We do blocks of flats. We do unoccupied properties, um, including ones that are undergoing renovations, extensions, structural works uh, and all of that. We do commercial types of properties. We do mixed use. We do HMOs, student accommodation, serviced accommodation, Airbnb, rent to rents. Uh, we also look after property sources and contractors as well. So there probably isn't um, a property related topic that I don't know about. And if I don't know about it, I'd love to know because then I can go and find out and try and help where I can. But generally speaking, we insure all of the different types of tenants that you can imagine. They're not always as easy to insure. Um, your standard buy-to-lets and blocks of flats are dead easy because most insurers will do those. 
But the more non-standard ones are things like um, HMOs where there's more than six tenants. So I do have a couple of HMOs where there's 16 bedrooms. Those aren't those are very difficult to place because not all insurers will do them. You have to go to very specific insurers. Uh, secondly, if there's cooking in the bedrooms, for example, in those HMOs, again, not all insurers will do that. So we need to know about that because that's a material fact. And again, not all insurers will do it. So I need to go to a specific insurer to say, are you OK with that? Uh, students, again, and serviced accommodation, so Airbnb type uh, type ones. Uh, again, not all insurers will do that. We are seeing more and more insurers who are happy to. Um, but again, we have to go to a very specific select uh, insurers to, to get quotes for those. Um, where it comes to um, non-standard tenants, for example, so um, if they've been placed there by the social um, housing um, association or local authority, where it's a vulnerable tenant, for example, um, there's very, very few insurers that will do it. So it's really important to have as much information about the type of um, lease that you have with the housing association, for example, um, and what kind of tenants that you might get. So I've got um, a client, for example, who's got uh, lots of um, vulnerable uh, tenants that, that go in there but it could be emergency. So they might be in there for 24 hours or they might be in there for 12 months. Well, if we understand about the company that places the tenants and what type of things they do, excuse me, what kind of things they do with those uh, tenants and how they vet them, uh, that really helps us to uh, present that to the insurers so that they understand what they're doing. The thing about insurers, uh, insurers is if they don't understand it, they'll be more cautious. So they're, they're likely to put a higher rate on something because they'll have a, like a, a cautious approach uh, so if they don't understand, they will make it more expensive. If they know more about it and they can understand how it will all work, then they're likely to be more flexible in terms of, of premium. So that's the property side of it. We can pretty much do all of it. Um, we've got goodness knows how many different insurers. So there's usually a market that will do it, but it just means we have a, um, fewer insurers to go to when it's a little bit more non-standard. <clears throat> Excuse me. So who are we? So Senti Insurance Brokers uh, was established in 2016. Um, <clears throat> I set the business up with my business partner, partner Richard Waltier. Um, we've been insurance, <clears throat> excuse me, I should have got myself a little glass of water. I, I forget how much uh, talking dries your, dries your mouth out. Uh, so I've personally been insurance for about 20 years um, and all of our staff have been in insurance for Goodness knows how long. We did a little stat a, a little while ago, and I think we worked out that between us, we had about 250 years worth of experience, which is bizarre. Uh, we are independent, so we're an independent broker. Um, so we only recommend the policies that suit the client. We're not tied into a specific insurer at any point. Uh, we have access to about 250 insurers. That doesn't mean I'm going to go to 250 insurers every time I do a property quote, because I know that there's probably only about 20 insurers that will do specific things. Um, and that's why it's really important to go to a broker that understands your business, because I already have um, uh, a resume, if you like, of, of different insurers that will do different things. So I don't need to waste my time going to insurers that aren't going to do it. I will spend my time with the insurers that will do something to negotiate with them. So I know which insurers to go to for any given type of tenant. Um, so that's a yeah, really useful one to have there. There's 16 members of staff at the moment and we are growing. Um, not all of us do property, but a lot of us do property. Um, about 45% of our business, uh, 45 to 50% of our business is, is property related. Um, and that could be anything from a single buy to let through to portfolios, industrial estates, blocks of flats, blocks of offices, construction, so and everything in between. So there's not really that many people in the business that don't know much about property. Um, we, we love property. So uh, ask us anything. <laughs> we'll probably know the answer between us. 
Uh, all our services are handled in-house, so we have an in-house claims team that we can utilise. Um, we'll be responsible for all your renewals, midterm changes, um, all your queries, questions. If you just need advice or to sound somebody out, you know, to ask them a query on something, we're there to, to help. That's the, the advantage of having a broker is that you have a point of contact. You're not going through to a call centre. You're speaking to a person and building up that relationship with somebody. Um, I've put this slide in here. This is the, the current challenges facing brokers, because I think it's really important for people to understand why things that are, that are the way that they are at the moment. And what I mean by that is why is there everything so expensive at the moment? Uh, and there's a, a lot of different reasons for that. So uh, the first challenges uh, that I've put on this slide here is about non-UK residents. We're seeing an awful lot more of overseas investors uh, investing in property in the UK. And that's not a problem. That's fantastic for the economy. Um, but it does create a challenge because not all insurers will cover non-UK residents. So if you live outside of the UK, um, there's a couple of um, challenges, shall we say, with getting insurance for you. If you are a UK passport holder and you've got a UK bank account with a UK letting agent, usually it's fine. And if you're living outside of the EU, sometimes it makes it a little bit more, a little bit easier, actually, to, to get that insurance. But if you are a UK passport holder, it does make things easier. If you are not a UK passport holder, um, it makes it very, very difficult to find insurance for you because there's so many insurers that will not cover anybody living outside of the UK. So we have a lot of Hong Kong investors. And actually, that um, is a very specific area um, of, of investors that we have. And a lot of them are um, BNO passport holders. That's fine. That's almost the equivalent to a UK passport holder. Uh, so that's OK. If they have a UK bank account, um, or they have a UK um, managing agent. I'm really sorry if there's noise in the background. My cat's just trying to get into the room. <laughs> so sorry about that. Um, so yeah, if, if you're a non-UK resident, um, we just need to ask a few more questions about your, your residency, your passport, your banking. So have you got a UK bank account? Um, there's lots of different reasons why insurers need to know this. Um, it's often to do with money laundering, um, fraud and things like that. They just need to know you are who you say you are. Uh, the second challenge that I've put on here is Brexit. It feels like a long time ago that this happened, but it still has an impact on the insurance industry. There's a lot of um, or there's a lack of legislation, should I say, around um, non-UK residents as well. So anything that's outside of the UK makes things very difficult. So we're still seeing the effects of legislation being changed or just not having the right legislation in place. So it does make things a little bit more challenging. It will continue to improve, I'm sure, but it's a slow process. The next thing that we've got uh, coming up here, sorry, my cat's just about to walk over my screen, um, is uh, at the hardened market. Now, this is the, the most um, prevalent uh, challenge that we've got at the moment. Now, hardened market is basically a thing that happens every few years, usually following an economic downturn. So the financial crisis in 2007, eight or whenever it was, was probably the last time it happened. But hardened market basically means that Insurers are less flexible. There's fewer of them. They have fewer capacity, um, reduced capacity, I should say. They aren't able to negotiate. A lot of insurance companies go bust during a hardened market. So basically, as a result, they put prices up. They're non-flexible. Everything's a lot more expensive. And it's really difficult for them to agree to do certain things. So what you were seeing with your prices this time last year you're seeing an increase in premium this year. Um, and that could be as much as 20%, could be more, could be a little bit less, depends on the insurer. Um, the other thing that's happened within this hardened market this time round is the cost of materials. Now, I'm sure that you're all seeing this with um, buildings and, and if you're you know, doing refurbishments and things like that, 
cost of materials is really expensive at the moment. That also has an impact on the premiums that you're uh, that you're paying. Um, so we're seeing that lots of things are, are getting very expensive. This should start to settle down a little bit, but over the next sort of 12 months or so, it will start to, to steady and we'll start, start to see it improve. And then we'll go into what's called a soft market where there's a lot more competition, there's a lot of buzz and we'll be able to do a lot more uh, trading. Uh, but at the moment, it's, it's a real challenge and things are very expensive. And it's not our fault as a broker. Uh, and we are just as frustrated as you are because when the insurance company gives us a premium and it's 20% more than last year and there've been no claims, it's really annoying and really upsetting to have to explain that to the client. So we do the best that we can to find the best insurer for you without compromising on cover. But it's a challenge because there's not as many insurers that are quoting for the same things that they were the year before. So it just makes things very difficult. Uh, I've already talked about uh, non-standard tenants. That's the next point on, on there as well. Like I say, we're seeing a lot more of non-standard tenants. So whether they be vulnerable client, uh, vulnerable tenants, um, ex-offenders, for example, using properties as rehab, um, all sorts of different things. We're seeing a lot more of it at the moment. It just makes it a bit more challenging because the standard insurers don't often cover them. So uh, it's it's not something that we can't do. We absolutely can. It's just having the patience because it can take a little bit more time to find these things out. So those are the, a few of the challenges that, that we're facing at the moment. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I could talk about insurance all day. Uh, Tom knows I love to talk about insurance um, and I'm happy to. Uh, don't ask me any difficult questions though. I don't like that. <laughs> Joking, obviously, I love it. Um, so uh, yeah, that was a whistle stop tour. Tried to make it um, as simplified as I possibly can, um, but that's it. So if you've got any questions, I'm more than happy to answer. Well, thank you very much, um, Caroline. My apologies, by the way, if I ever call you Caroline during this. With my aunt over all week, she's called Caroline. So, uh, uh, so that's my, if that happens, that'll be why. Um, uh, really enjoyed that. You mentioned at the start that um, we've got lots of questions. By the way, um, Yoga, she's I don't know he's, he's had a cup of coffee or something, and it's gone mental. So we, we, we've got like fifteen questions already. So we, we, we're going to have to rattle through as many as we can. But that's a good thing, of course. I'm, I'm genuinely grateful for Yoga's questions. Anyone else got a, got any of those at the meeting? Then slap them in the chat. You mentioned at the start that cheap isn't always best with regards to insurance. Of course, I was wondering if you give us an example of something where you thought cheap is best. I thought of two examples. One is slippers. Um, I always buy the cheapest ones I can find. Um, and just wear them out and then get out to new ones. The other one was sand. I'm never buying builder's sand. I don't I don't go high grade. I tend to just go for the basic. Uh, anything where you go for cheap stuff? Cats? Um, washing powder. You can get it from Wilco's. It's a lot cheaper than getting it from Tesco's. Boom, there's, there's a tip. <laughs> it, it was, today's already been worth the entry fee alone for everyone there. Uh, for those of the podcast, Wilco's is uh, is your friend. Okay, um, we will, of course, put all the... Uh, Carl, I mentioned a few things there. The most exciting one, I think for a lot of people, will be the reinstatement value calculator, which funnily enough I've been using this week, um, which just gives you an indication of reinstatement values. It's just something I wanted to talk about briefly, but we'll put useful links to things like that in the chat. Um, uh, this next bit I'm going to say will definitely be better at the end, but I'm going to forget at the end, so I'm going to say it now. But imagine it's at the end, please, which is that... Um, I use I use Caroline uh, Caroline sorry I said okay, sorry, Caroline already um, I use Caroline for all my insurance so um, if I go bust you know who to blame and who to go and find um, but also the reason I mentioned that uh, isn't some sort of plug although I suppose it is kind of uh, I use it because I think she's very good but uh, but um, she's also on our power team so with the podcast I will pop a link to our power team you can find her on there as well we'll of course post her sort of direct contact too right that bit being at the end let's crack back into the beginning um 
I wanted to start at the beginning. Is it a legal requirement to have insurance? Um, thinking, of course, specifically about landlord insurance. Do I have to have no, insurance as a landlord? No, it's, it's not a legal requirement to have property insurance. It's a legal requirement to have motor insurance and employer's liability. So if you have an employee, it's a legal requirement to have employer's liability. It's also a legal requirement to have equestrian, uh, public liability if you have an equestrian company. So if you own horses and have a, a stable that you let other people ride uh, your horses, it's a legal requirement to have uh, insurance for that. But those are the only three compulsory insurances. So it's not a legal requirement to have property owners as property owners insurance or home insurance. You don't have to have it. Um, but I wouldn't recommend that because, well, unless you've got a few million quid lying around. Well, also, you're an insurance broker. It would be weird if also, you... Also, I'd go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be difficult to get those uh, to make those payments. Um, uh, uh, I, well, I must tell Avindra, I think he's still here. Yeah, he is. So, uh, Avindra, I've been telling you for ages about that equestrian, uh, equestrian insurance. You must go on to that. <laughs> um, but meanwhile, uh, but isn't it isn't it a condition of the mortgage? If you've got a mortgage, then it will be a condition that you've got buildings insurance, no? Quite often, yeah, because, uh, it, I mean, again, it's not a legal thing. So if they put that in there, it's their own requirement. So they put you between a rock and a hard place because they're not going to give you the money unless you get insurance. But it's in their interest to do that because they don't want to own uh, loan you money on a property that, you know, suddenly falls down because, you know, they've made a loss then. So it's yeah. often a condition with mortgages that they will do that, but it's not a legal requirement. So if so, you couldn't face you know criminal charges. But if uh, clearly it fell down, you wouldn't get any insurance money because you haven't got any insurance. Meanwhile, um, uh, the, the the mortgage broker, mortgage broker, mortgage company would clearly call in a loan or do something unpleasant like that uh, if they felt that you'd breached. That they, they they could do that if they felt you'd breached your conditions. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, condition of average is fascinating. This is the one. This is one thing that I've been learning about recently, and it can do with reinstatement values. Of course, you talked about. Um, uh, and I wanted to just uh, briefly touch on a, a, a situation I had, which was, um, uh, which which hopefully brings into the focus for people because I think it's really important. I think a lot of I, I, like I've not had chats with this about other uh, landlords, and maybe everyone else out there is doing better on this than I am. But I, I, I have my strong suspicions that not. So I, I was lucky in the sense that I had a small claim recently, and so I was like, okay, you know, claim on the insurance. There we go, small claim. It was two and a half thousand pounds for uh, some kids broke in while the place was empty and turned it over. Just needed a bit of decoration, two and a half grand, a new new front and back door. Happy days. Well, not happy days, but you know, could be a lot worse. Nobody was hurt. Fine. Contact the insurance, and they. You know, they they have lost adjusters, and they went out and 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 uh, assessed the property and so on, and eventually came back and said, "Well, your insurance is sort of roughly speaking twenty percent undervalued <laughs> using this condition of average thing, which is a fancy term for God knows what." But anyway, that's what that you know that's that's what that is. So, uh, so basically, you're underinsured a bit. So uh, you're not insured the value of property. I said, "Yeah, but hang on a minute." My even if that's true, I'm still insured to like 150 grand or something. I'm only asking for two and a half. They're like, ah, condition of average means that we can because that large number isn't large enough, we can apply that to this claim. So even smaller claims um, are affected by that, which is something I didn't realize and thought I should make, um, well, I mean, Caroline was obviously talking about it, but I thought I'd make it extra super clear that that can affect even smaller claims. So even if your house doesn't fall down, it does affect you. So I only got paid £2,000 on that on that claim. Now, that's not the end of the world, but if that was a 20 grand claim and suddenly I'm only getting whatever that would be, 16, um, you've got to find £4,000 because you've not paid enough I can, I can give you a really good example of this one tom which makes it brings it home a little bit more so i've had a client recently and i didn't know he had a fire but he had a fire and i was contacted by the insurance company um, and it was a commercial um, commercial retail unit essentially so it was like a warehouse type property and he was about 51 percent underinsured and mm. um, he just received his settlement for three hundred and twenty nine thousand pounds he should have got over six hundred thousand right 
Now, I didn't know he was underinsured because I don't know his property. I can give him the information. I can say to him and as much as I like, by the way, make sure you're insured for the right amount. But unless he told me, unless he reviews it, um, I, I won't know about that. Now, he hadn't reviewed his sum insured for about 30 years. So suddenly he's made a loss of whatever the maths is on there, but about 300 grand short of what it should have been. Yeah, not not a good week at the office, is it? So that's that, that's why I think that's worth an excellent example to to really drive this home um, for people. Um, and again, I'm not trying to scare anyone, but it is is my is my policy, my non insurance policy, which is if you're going to have insurance, um, then and you get to decide whether you want to do that or not. But if you're going to have insurance. Get insured, um, you know, make sure you're actually insured, not like a little bit insured, because when it goes wrong, it's really nice that the thing pays out, given that you're paying the full premium. Um, so that would be my top tip. With that said, it's sort of re repeating something you said there, Caroline, was that reinstatement value seems to have shot up. I, I was, when you go online and Google it, people will say things like, oh, reinstatement value, and these are like maybe websites that are a year or two old, are broadly speaking the same as market value. My, my recent experience has been, because I've uncalculated it, is rule of thumb, this does not constitute financial advice, etc. but it's been roughly double. So if you've got a house that's worth 100 grand, you need a reinstatement value of 200-ish, um, has been my broad rule of thumb. And it seems to be about right for, you know, different types of properties, different areas. Um, and I'm not, uh, so it, you mentioned earlier, Caroline, the sort of stats flying around is, is that roughly, you know, sort of anecdote flying around, maybe 70% of people are underinsured. My guess is that's quite a lot of you. And by the way, probably me as well. So um, uh, if there's anything to come out of this, I'd say check your reinstatement values and then realize, and then go, uh oh, it's not, it's not enough. Um, and then, uh, and then increase them. And it doesn't increase your premium that much. That's the crazy part uh, in most cases, in my experience. Um, speaking of that, Caroline, um, a policy is not index linked. Do they not? Do they not say, "Hey, we'll, we'll put it up with inflation each year." And why? Yeah, absolutely. So, why... so in, index linking at the moment. So index linking, if you're not not aware of it, is basically a, a, an uplifted percentage that they apply to the building sum insured at renewal. In theory, in line with any inflation that's happened during the year. Mm. Um, typically, so up until last year, it was anywhere between three and six percent. At the moment, the highest I've seen it is eighteen percent. And that's largely driven by the cost of materials and how high that is at the moment. But if you're already underinsured, 18% uplift still makes you underinsured. So it doesn't matter that you're applying the index linking, you're still underinsured. Yeah. So if I, um, I, I realize I'm pretty, that's an excellent stuff. Uh, the, I realize I'm pretty myself, but if you're going to take one thing from this, we can take whatever you like, probably the thing about the Wilcos. But second thing would be, um, uh, go if, if you were lucky enough to own some properties, go away and check your, which is boring job, obviously. Uh, we failed already to make it fun and sexy, but it, uh, hopefully make it at least profitable, which is um, go away and check your reinstatement value for your property and ask yourself, so, you know, quiet moment, what's that property worth now? Roughly 150 grand is my reinstatement value around 300 grand. Brackets, it definitely isn't. Um, brackets, go and get in touch with your broker or someone and get it changed. Um, okay. Uh, Let's get on to Yogesh's questions. That seems like a good thing to do. He was asking about loss adjusters. And funnily enough, it occurred to me, I hadn't got a loss adjuster for my little claim. I was just talking about, oh, maybe I should have got a loss adjuster because the insurance companies, to be clear, use loss adjusters and that's the people they employ to try and make sure that they're paying out the right amount, brackets, as little as they can, which is fair enough. That you know, That's what I do as well if I was an insurance company, by the way. Um, but then you can hire loss adjusters on your side. You know, you can have a sort of, you can fight, you can fight fire with fire, fight loss adjuster with loss adjuster by paying them. Um, uh uh, is that something cats appeared is that something you recommend caroline or 
uh, does it rather depend on the case or, or how, yeah, how does that so work? There's lots of different ways to answer that really um if you uh, have a small claim so yours tom was a, a, under a certain threshold so generally mm. speaking they won't apply a loss adjuster um appoint a loss adjuster that will come to your property to review it they'll desktop it essentially so they do it all in-house and, and have a look at it that way yeah. if you have a claim that's five ten thousand and more they usually appoint a loss adjuster um, and then they'll, they're, you know, they're working on behalf of the insurer. So it's always working with the insurer's interest at heart rather than, than yours. It's always good when there's a loss adjuster involved um, because you can speak to them like a human being, although not all of them are very friendly, unfortunately. Um, you can't you can appoint a loss adjuster yourself during a claim, but it costs you a lot of money. One of the things that we can do is um, offer you something at renewal, which is caught. Sorry, my cat is driving me insane. Um, what, one of the things that you can do is just computer. <laughs> Um, is, uh, is is purchase what's called a commercial loss recovery uh, insurance. And basically what that does is it you pay something like, I don't know, £130, sometimes a lot less than that. It can be as little as £50 um, at renewal, depending on the, your, your overall premium. And you buy that every year. And then if you do have a claim, it, the policy kicks in and it pays for the independent services of a loss adjuster to work on your behalf for any claim that's over £5,000. So then they're working for you and then they liaise with the loss adjuster that's appointed by the insurer. So that we use a company called Larega. You can have a look at them uh, online, L-O-R-E-G-A, Larega Loss Recovery. Um, we offer, offer this for a lot of our property clients, especially on the, the bigger ones or if you've got a portfolio or block of flats uh, or something a little bit more complex. It's absolutely worth its weight in gold because they will appoint their own loss adjuster to work on your behalf to then liaise with the insurance company. Um, and they're working with your interest. That's the really the key distinction there. They're not working on behalf of the insurer. And because they are ex-loss adjusters that worked for insurance companies previously, they understand the lingo. They can speak to the loss adjuster in a way that we couldn't or that you couldn't because they know what they're, you know, the, the way that they work and the way the insurance companies work. So that is something that you can purchase. And I would absolutely recommend purchasing that when you haven't got a claim because it's a lot cheaper. Whereas if you hire a loss adjuster separately, they usually charge a percentage of your overall claim. So if your claim is, you know, 10 grand, they're charging you four or five percent of that. Boom. I feel like we've given too much good information here. Like we should slip <laughs> down, you know, like how are people possibly going to uh, do all this? We need to, I don't know. We need to stop. Anyway, uh, we can't stop. We must never stop uh, because we don't know what might happen. So with that in mind, Yogesh further asks, um, should we pay for public liability insurance for a flat if the freeholder pays for block, uh, block income? Um, it's a good question and it depends. So if you've got a flat, <clears throat> but you don't insure it because you're not furnishing it, <clears throat> the building insurance um, is in force. And as part of the building insurance, there is property owner's liability included anyway, which will cover any aspects of your flat. Um, if you um, do have contents in there, so white goods, carpet, um, usually when you buy that insurance, it will automatically come with public liability or property owner's liability. Um, it is probably a good idea that there is an exposure there. doesn't happen as often because it's not very frequent that someone would trip over a a rug or something and crack the head open and sue you for having the rug there it's very rare but it can happen so it's kind of a you know take me how how what's your attitude towards risk i suppose um so have a look and, and review how you feel about it <clears throat> excuse me if you've got contents insurance you buy contents insurance for that flat it usually comes with public liability anyway my attitude to risk is ah, i'm falling i'm falling um <laughs> uh i'm not sure what that means what 
what I can see is Arvinder, and I'm trying to work out if he's on some sort of public transport, some sort of first class, looks like Orient Express type situation, or whether his house is just very wobbly. Um, it's one of the two. <laughs> let's, for his insurance, let's hope it's the former. Uh, meanwhile, um, Yogesh asks, can you buy uh, home emergency insurance standalone uh, to cover boiler breakdowns? Yes, you absolutely can. There's a couple of companies out there that do it. Um, <clears throat> off the top of my head, I can't remember what the cost is, but it, you can... We do it, um, but you can also get it with the likes of HomeServe or um, I forget who the other one are now, but there's lots of different companies that do it. Always read the small print with that, though, because the inner limits on it are very small and it will also have conditions in there that says you have to have your boiler serviced every year. It has to be less than maybe 10 or 15 years old um, and various different things. So if you don't comply with those, you're buying nothing really because it won't pay out. So yes, you absolutely can buy it on its own. It's cheap and cost effective unless you're, you've got 20 properties because in my opinion, I wouldn't be buying it on 20 properties because the amount you pay on insurance is probably the same amount you pay if you have to repair one of them for example. So uh, just read the small print on that. Do you need to know about claims before you purchase the property and declare them? Um, that's a really good question. And I would always ask the question because actually if the property has previously suffered from subsidence or flooding, yes, absolutely. Because the, the insurance company are going to do checks to see whether it's in an area of flooding or not. So it's really important to know whether it actually has flooded before or not. Subsidence, you wouldn't necessarily know, but you might do if the property has been underpinned in the past. If it has, again, it's a material fact and we absolutely would need to know. So there's no harm in asking the questions, but I'd like to think any home buyers reports or reports that you get would include things like that anyway. But yeah, it's a good question to ask. What insurance do you need when doing works on property and what insurance should the contractor have in place? What if the contractor fails to renew the policy and you don't know they have lapsed the policy? Uh, well, the latter question, you can sue them uh, for breach of contract, I suppose. Uh, essentially, what you're looking for here is a contractor's policy or a contractor's all risks. Um, so basically, it's employer's liability, public liability and contractor's liability. So contract works um, essentially covers the actual work that they're doing. So if you think about it and they're building an extension on your property, if they're halfway through and there's a flood, they've lost all that work and they've got to redo that work. Well, a contract works policy covers those materials and the work they've done or the work in progress. So it gives them the money <clears throat> to rebuy the materials to redo the work again. Uh, and public liability, because if they damage any of your property or hurt somebody, then that's the cover that they would need. If you're employing a company to come in and do it, you don't necessarily need to have that insurance in place as long as they've got it in, in place. If you're a project manager, so you're doing it for uh, somebody else, for example, or you're, you're project managing the, the site, you can get that insurance in place at the top level that covers all the companies underneath. Um, is there a database I can contact to see all my landlord claims or, or a database that an insurance company can see? Um, unfortunately, there isn't. The only database that we have is for uh, motor insurance and employer's liability, because those, as I said before, are the compulsory insurances. There isn't a database which has all of those. Now, if you're with an insurer um, and you move companies, for example, um, when you go back to that company, they should have a record on their system. If they do a, a search on the postcode, information might come up, but they might not tell you that because of data protection, particularly if you didn't own the property when it had a claim. But there isn't a central database that picks that information up, unfortunately. There should be, and I think you should get onto it straight away. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> are, you, are we doing this weekend? Because it needs a cancelling. Uh, uh, 
uh, finally, I think Jorgis asked sort of a jokey question, although I think there might actually be a serious answer, so I'll, I'll do it in a serious voice, which is, can you insure against HMRC? I think the answer is no, but you can probably insure against uh, what's what's his name, like, you know, being investigated, can't you? You, you can. So there are insurance policies out there that can cover fines and penalties for various different things. So, yeah, there, there probably is an insurance policy out there to cover certain elements, but probably not all. But, yeah. <laughs> Legal expenses policies sometimes do cover certain investigations and tax investigations, so it's always worth looking into. Well, there we go. Um, I think we've covered about half of your issues questions. Uh, I think, frankly, we've done a decent job. So uh, I think there's a, de- a, a good chance you might get a call from a guy called Yogesh uh, in the week. Um, um, well, have you enjoyed yourself? I, I've had a blast. Was it fun <laughs> for everyone else? <laughs> I, 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 well, I'm getting some... <laughs> <laughs> Clive's Clive's back with us. Come on, Clive. Um, uh, but I think everyone's had a blast. Uh, I've been this house. He's still falling down. So he, he might phone you as well to, <laughs> to check, <laughs> try and get some policy in place immediately. Or his bus might arrive somewhere. Um, either way, uh, um, oh, hang on. What's going on? Someone said something. Let's check it, see if it's interesting or useful. Uh, uh, no, it's Yogesh asking me to ask questions. Don't ask it yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm, we're busy. Well, can I ask now? No, no, you can't. Um, no, we, we, I'm, I'm determined to finish on time for once. Uh, but uh, uh, so no, uh, I'm putting my foot down for the first time in in three years of history. But um, but thanks very much, everyone, for being here. Uh, thanks very much, Caroline, uh, for being here. Um, and uh, it's uh, been a wonderful chat. Uh, even though I'm not ending it very well. But, you know, if you're going to start well, deliver well, and then finish badly, I think that's not so bad. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening to on the podcast. We just whistled past, I think it was 6,500 or 7,000 listeners for the podcast. So I really appreciate that. Um, uh, and uh, have a great weekend.